In case you didn't hear him, Luke chapter 1. We've got quite a few verses to read through this morning, so if you don't have a Bible in front of you, I would encourage you to do so right now. If you, don't, if you didn't bring a Bible or don't have one, there's a paperback Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Take it home, mark it up, fall in love with Christ in the Scriptures. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through verse 80. When you get to verse 57, say, Emmanuel. All right, upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with? Awesome. Beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have had called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're glad that you're here. Hopefully you have your Bible with you. We are continuing in our sermon series um, for Advent. And uh, many of you may not know what Advent is, maybe if you didn't grow up in church, but Advent is uh, where we get the Latin word for the coming. And really, um, Advent is about two things. It's about reflection and preparation. On reflection, we look back upon the birth of Jesus Christ, and we look at the fact that God uh, became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. But we don't just look back. When we look back, it gives us faith to look forward to look forward that Jesus Christ is going to come again. Amen? And so it's really a season to build with anticipation, and it allows us to really slow down in a season of the year that tends to be very busy and hectic. And we're in our second week for that. And maybe as a way of illustration to set us up for this Sunday, uh, it was January 12th, 2007, and the Washington Post uh, was doing an experiment And they had a man uh, in a Washington, D.C. subway put on a baseball hat and play a violin. And many of you may know about this story, but he uh, played the violin there, just as sometimes many musicians do if you've been on Bill Street or places like that. He had his violin case open for people to throw money into. And there was 1,070 people that walked by him during that time. 
and a total whopping $32 was thrown into the violin case during that time. And only about two to three people actually stopped and understood what was taking place. And what was taking place was it was not just any man, but it was a man by the name of Joshua Bell who was playing the violin, who is arguably the greatest violinist who has ever lived, who also gets $1,000 a minute at his concerts. And he was not playing just any violin, but he was playing a 1713 Stradivarius violin that sold for $4 million. And the Washington Post did this experiment, and it actually won them a Pulitzer Prize. And the article is beautiful. You can actually YouTube the clip of him playing there in the subway. And the article said some things like people were so busy that they didn't stop and listen to the music and the greatness that was there before them. And the article says this, something about incognito stories grabs our attention. Greatness unnoticed. Talent ignored and fame overlooked. And when you think about that, I think that's exactly the Christmas season. For oftentimes, we don't stop and listen to the music and the beauty that's actually taking place. What we're doing is we're looking at the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, and we're looking at the songs that people sang for the birth of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the church calendar, the second Sunday of Advent, we learn about this man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, not to be confused with the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, but John the Baptist was really sort of the last Old Testament prophet who was prophesied to be born before Jesus to prepare the way for him. And one of the things that we constantly see surrounding John's life is literally the idea of greatness, of true greatness. But it's not a greatness that you and I would really think that is great. We see John's birth prophesied in Luke chapter 1 to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they were older in years. And they had been praying and asking God for a child. And the angel Gabriel appears to them and says this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. What's profound about that is in the context, these people had been going through what has been taught as 400 years of silence. For God had not spoken or done anything miraculous. And what's really great about John's birth is that it was prophesied 400 years in the book of Malachi. And the prophecy reads this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The great day of the Lord. John the Baptist prepares the way for that. But the word great shows up again in context with John. Jesus Christ himself, from the lips of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, says these words. I tell you, among those born of a woman, no one is greater than John. That's profound, right? 
I mean, like Elizabeth and Zachariah, they had the bumper sticker above all bumper stickers, right? My kid's on the honor roll. Yeah, well, Jesus said, my kid's better than yours. You know what I mean? I mean, that's there. We see just greatness always constantly surrounding John's life. But when we look at John's life, it's not something that we would say by the world's standards is great necessarily. And really, when we look at Christmas itself and the greatness that the Bible teaches about it, We really don't compare it to be great by the world's standards. So the big idea that we're going to work with today is this. Christmas teaches us that a truly great life is a radically God-centered life. That a truly great life is a radically God-centered life. So the question that's before us as we look at the song of Zechariah is... Well, what does a radically God-centered life look like? What does a great life look like? And we see this in Zechariah's song. Zechariah's song is very familiar as to what we looked at last week at Mary's, the mother of Jesus Christ. And they talk about God's faithfulness and his promises and how personal he is. But Zechariah really hones in as the prophecy is given about who John is and how great he will be. So we're going to look at these characteristics, and the first one that we see that we cannot ignore is this, an influence of godly parents. This was brought to my attention this week as I was studying, and another pastor drew this out of the text. But when you read the first two chapters of Luke's account, man, there's a lot of detail about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it actually says this in Luke 1. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's who John's parents were. Now, I know what some of you parents are saying. Well, good for John's parents. All goody two-shoe parents walking blamelessly in the sight of the Lord. Well, that ain't me. You know what I mean? I have to do a little bit of work because as soon as I say the phrase godly parents, parent guilt just washes over the room. Right? And you recall failures and shortcomings. But what we understand about the history of Zechariah, actually, as a parent, is that when the angel came and told Zechariah, Your wife's going to bear a son, and his name's going to be John, you know what Zechariah's response was? Yeah, right, bro. That ain't happening. We're old, man. That ain't happening. Zechariah did not believe the promise of God and, listen, was actually silent, mute, because of God's judgment the whole nine months of the pregnancy. Now, some of you ladies are like a quiet husband for the whole pregnancy. This is a gift from the Lord, right? But I say that to say this. Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't perfect. Listen, to be godly parents doesn't mean to be perfect parents. That's not what that's about. What does it mean to be godly parents? What is biblical parenting? Biblical parenting is this. Biblical parenting is the process of pointing our children to Jesus in anything and everything that we do. And it's actually not in ways that you think it is. It's a little bit more practical than, quote, just taking my kids to church. It's actually a little bit deeper than that. Actually, to point our kids to Jesus means that we teach them repentance and faith. And it may actually look like this, getting on eye level with a six-year-old child and saying, hey, I'm sorry about that outburst earlier. 
I was stressed out and I said some things that I shouldn't have said in the van on the ride over here. But I need Jesus just as much as you do. That's teaching repentance to our kids. You see, it's funny because your kids know what you value. Oh, they watch. They watch where money is spent, where time is invested. And they see, why are mom and dad going to community group? Why do mom and dad serve? Why do mom and dad do this and do this? And I notice my other friends don't do this. Now, I know what some of you are saying, Jason, I didn't grow up with godly parents. That's okay. Because you can break that chain of legacy today. And by God's grace and his power, you can raise your children in the ways of the Lord. Now, this is what this does not mean. And for some reason, it's bled into the church. That if you do X, Y, and Z, then your kids are just going to come out like little saints all the time, right? The book of Proverbs says that folly and sin is bound up in the heart of a child. So, Mama, I'm sorry to shatter your image of that perfect little darling, but that perfect little darling needs Jesus, okay? And that's not cookie-cutter parenting. It, not mean, it doesn't mean if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, then everything goes okay, because your children make choices, and your children have a will. But what it does mean is that by God's grace and by your efforts, you are always pointing them in the way in which Jesus teaches Now, there's this cliche that floats around. Do not do as I say, right? But I'm sorry, do not do as I do, but do as I say, which is the dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my life and the most unbiblical parenting advice that you could ever get. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there was an archbishop of Canterbury by the name of John Tittleson. John had a young congregation very similar to Westside, a lot of young family and parents and things like that, and he would constantly speak on gospel-centered parenting. And this is what he said, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and we lead them to hell. I'm not saying be perfect parents. I'm saying by God's grace and by your effort, we strive to point them to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why in our home, we don't do certain things and we don't go certain places and we spend our money this way and we invest our time with this and we have people over to our house and we're reading the Bible together and we're praying together as a family because what we're doing is we're setting up rhythms in our life and guardrails around our children's life to know that the influence of godly parents matters in this world. And listen to me. Some of you may have kids that are 30, 40, 50 years old. Here's what I'm saying to you. Do not give up on those kids because just because they're out of your home doesn't mean they don't need your influence. Because listen, we're 30, we're 40 years old and we're having kids and we realize that life is difficult and it is beating the brakes off of us. And what we need is not a passive dad and a nagging mom telling us how they used to do it. What we need is a dad that will take us out and have a cup of coffee and say, this is what it looks like to love a woman for 30 years and to have a mom invest in a godly woman and say, this is what it looks like to love your husband and this is what it looks like when your kids go off the beaten path to love them and to pray for them. This is what the influence of godly parenting is in your life. And we cannot help but look at John's life. 
and know that his parents, listen, they were just ordinary people. Zechariah was a priest. He didn't make much money. We don't even know what Elizabeth did. But man, they were dead set to point their kid to Jesus and say, we're going to set up some parameters in our family, the influence of godly parents. The second thing is this, a filling of the Holy Spirit. A filling of the Holy Spirit. Do you see there in verse 66 when Zechariah breaks out and speaks for the first time and says, And all who heard them uh, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? Again, greatness with John. And then it says this phrase, For the hand of the Lord was with him. That's another way of saying that the Holy Spirit was with John. And we see that it's actually prophesied in Luke chapter 1 when the angel comes and says these words, for he will be, we've got the scripture here, for he will be great before the Lord. There it is, great again with John. But what makes John great? He will be great before the Lord and must not drink wine or strong drink, which is the Nazarite vow, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what I think that we do sometimes? I think when we do character studies of people in the Bible, we moralize them. We put them in stained glass windows and we make them saints and we completely detach them from the Bible. And we understand that they were sinners just like me and you. And what makes someone great in the Bible is not inherently their own greatness, but it is the Spirit of God in their life doing something. Listen, this geeks me out, man. I'm going to get jacked and get Baptocostal up in this thing today. Because here's what's crazy. This is the good news of the gospel. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that you will be saved. And at that moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says that you get baptized into the Holy Spirit of God. And the very Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead sets up shop in your life and lives inside of you. He converts you. He comforts you. He gifts you and gives you gifts for ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is profound, this news of the gospel has for us. Did you know that that happens in your life? But oftentimes we think this, that Holy Spirit moment are mountaintop experiences, right? It's like church camp. It's like, kumbaya, my Lord. Like, oh man, I felt him at church camp, but I don't feel him on Monday at work. And that's simply not true. Ephesians chapter 4 teaches and says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means a continual filling. Do you know that's why we teach the disciplines of the faith? Reading our Bible, praying, gathering corporately together to sing. Those things are like kindling on our life. And we pray and we beg and we ask God to ignite that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every time before I get up to preach, I ask God for a continual new filling of the Holy Spirit. And what it does in our life is it makes us like Christ. Listen, to be filled with the Spirit of God means to live a life empowered by God. That's what it means. Did you know that God has made no provision for you to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit? You can't do it. Living the Christian life is not something you do in your own strength, and then the Holy Spirit sort of, quote, helps you. The Holy Spirit is the one that does this in your life. He speaks to you. He comforts you. He gifts you. And you say, Jason, I don't know. What are the characteristics of this? What does this look like? And for some reason, we go to the mountaintop experiences in the Bible, and we see all these massive explosive moments, and we say, oh, we got to reenact that all the time, constantly, continually. God answers that in Galatians chapter 6. 
He says, this is what it looks like to have the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what the Spirit of God does in our life, is that it makes us Christ-like. And the greatness of John and the greatness of anyone in the Bible is not because of themselves, but is because of the Spirit of God doing something in their life. An influence of godly parents, a filling of the Holy Spirit, and then thirdly this, a deep, deep love for Jesus Christ. A deep love for Jesus. If there's anything that's characterized by John's life, It's that he loves Jesus. Look in verse 77 when Zechariah switches and says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Man, I love John the Baptist when I see him in the scriptures, right? I mean, this dude was a weird dude, but I loved him. He's a man's man, right? He wore like camel's hair, ate locusts and honey. He was paleo before it was ever cool, bro, right? You ain't nothing new on your P90, CrossFit, paleo, all this. John was doing that a long time ago, man. And this dude was a prophet, and he railed against the culture. He'd railed so much so that King Herod loved listening to John. I don't know why, because King Herod would have him over to the house and say, man, preach one of them good sermons. And John would go, "Uh, okay, repent, because you're sleeping with your brother's wife. I mean, he just put the guys on front street all the time, right? I mean, John would call people out by name in the church service, man. And Bill, you need to get your life together, right? You know what I mean? And this guy was just, oh, man, it was incredible. But what his job was is to prepare people for repentance for the coming of Jesus Christ. And his ministry got so big that people got confused. They were like, man, look at these crowds. Look at what he's doing. He must be Jesus. John is awesome. He must be Jesus. And John says some of the most profound things. In John chapter 3, he says these words. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Do you know what I think one of the most profound things that you can say in your life is? I am not the Christ. Which is saying this. I am not the Savior for my children. I am not the Savior of my marriage. I am not the Savior of my workplace. I cannot save anyone. And when you confess that, you're pointing people to Christ. But then John says a few verses later, one of the most beautiful things. He says, I must decrease, and he, Jesus, must increase. Listen, if you don't have a life verse, that's a beautiful life verse for you. I mean, put that on my tombstone, bro. I will die and be worm food, but Jesus Christ lives and reigns forever. Turn down the volume on me in my life and turn up the volume of Jesus in my life. Let me play the background. Listen, God's writing a story, and that story is called the gospel. And news to you, you don't have the leading role. You have best supporting at best. You're backstage holding like a prop. That's all you're doing in God's story. And there's one hero of the story, and that is Jesus Christ. And we see profound humility in John's life, which tells me this. When we have a deep love for Jesus and we go and prepare a way for him, isn't that interesting? That's what we do in our workplace. That's what we do with our children. 
we just prepare, hopefully, a way for these people to meet Jesus. That's all that you can do. And it's humbling to know that, which tells me this. Humility is the proper response to Jesus. Humility. Nobody encounters Christ and goes, wow, I'm pretty awesome. God loves me. I'm a unique snowflake. My grandma always gave me the extra uh, cupcake, right? I got a star next to my name. I need this, this, and this. I'm owed this, and I'm just sweet little precious child, right? So I'm just going to add Jesus to my life because I'm already awesome. So Jesus can probably make my life a little bit awesome as well. And what you have there is a negotiation with Jesus. And by the way, those don't ever go well. And what we understand is that when we come to Christ, like we sing these all the time and we don't even realize that we say this. We say, I'm saved, brother. Saved, right? You know what the counterstatement to that means? You were lost. God's grace. I'm a friend of Jesus, which means the counterstatement is, is that you were once not a friend of Jesus. Adopted by the blood. Awesome, which means the counterstatement that you were an orphan. You see, we don't come proud to the cross. As Charles Spurgeon said, the feet of Calvary is level, and everyone is on their knees there. This may be a familiar picture to you. You probably definitely know one of the men in it. Pictures of Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham's had a profound impact on my family. My middle name is Graham because my father was saved watching a Billy Graham crusade, and we passed the middle name on to our third child, Piper Graham. But the man in the picture with Billy is by a man by the name of Cliff Barrows. And if you're a nerd like me, which I'm sure you probably do, on Saturday evenings, you watch the old Billy Graham crusades on TV. I love doing that. And he hosts that hour. Cliff Barrows, what a lot of people don't know, is in the beginning when Billy Graham was setting out in his ministry, Billy Graham was not famous. He was just a country, lanky guy that loved Jesus and wanted to preach the Bible. He encountered Cliff Barrows at a revival that they did together and pursued Cliff to be a part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. But what a lot of people don't know is Cliff Barrows was way more famous than Billy Graham. He was preaching. He was singing. He was in very, very high demand. And so when Billy Graham asked Cliff Barrows to be a part of the team, a lot of people actually advised Cliff to not be a part of it. Because they said, this is going to be detrimental to your career. You're going to have to take the back seat to this guy who no one knows. And nobody knows that this career is ever going to kind of take off in regards to what Billy's wanting to do. So Cliff Barrows and his wife prayed adamantly about it. And then one evening, he approached Billy Graham and his wife Ruth and said these words. Bill, you know that we've struggled about whether to join your team. And the Lord has given us peace in our hearts. As long as you want us to, I'll be content to be your song leader. I'll even carry your bag and go wherever you want and do anything you ask me to do. I'll even carry your bag. That's beautiful. That goes against the selfie generation in today's age where we all want the fame, and we want something inside of us to be recognized in light of that. And what we see in John the Baptist is, I deflect all of this from me to Jesus Christ, and I just, listen, it would be a great honor just to carry Jesus' bags, man. That's all I want to do. I just want to go before the Lord, and I want him to have all the glory and honor in all of that. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're arguing with me there in your seat. 
because you're a good Christian, right? You're arguing with me here today. Well, Brother Jason, no one will know my name. Nobody already does know my name. I've just struggled in life, and I just, right? We call those pity parties. And guess who's at a pity party? Only you. And you are actually more prideful than anyone else. Because at the center of that is simply you. And your life revolves around you. No one understands. No one sees my point of view. And at some point, I'm fascinated with these people when they will evaluate their life and realize the common denominator is them. See, it's not self-pity. And it's not pride. As C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is just simply thinking of yourself less. That's all it is. And when you remove yourself out of the center of the equation, listen, there's a freedom that comes with that because it doesn't depend upon you. And you prop Jesus. The last thing that we see of a godly characteristic is a passion to expand God's kingdom. Do you see what Zechariah says, what John will do? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Verse 79, to give light, to guide feet. He, he walks through and talks about what it is to expand the very kingdom of God. Now, we've been learning about this through our series on the Sermon of the Mount. And this is what blows my mind. Westside, listen, the kingdom of God is breaking in through time, space, and history now. God is doing things. God, listen, God is saving people, man. God is taking people from death to life. God is performing miracles. God is saving marriages. God is freeing people from addictions. God is doing all of these things in the here and now. And what does this look like? What does it look like to expand the kingdom of God? John tells us this. The first thing is this, to give knowledge about salvation. Listen, Did you know, did you know that God has made a way, that God has made a way that your sin separated you from the very God that created you and all the hostility and all the emptiness and all the brokenness in your life is a sign of the inward symptom, but God has chased you and he's chased you in the person of Jesus and his grace has found you. And did you know that people don't know this? People don't know that they can change. People don't know that they don't have to be defined by what they've done. Listen, you don't have to be defined by the divorce. You don't have to be defined by the stealing. You don't have to be defined by your anger. You don't have to be defined by those things. That Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. And what we do is we share this news with people. And we say, listen, there is a way. And you can change. And your family can change. And you can break those generational sins in your life. That's what it is to expand the kingdom of God. But secondly, it's also this, to bring light into darkness. Do you see that? Zechariah says that John will give light to those who sit in darkness. Spurgeon said, do you notice that it says the word sit in darkness? Because we have made ourselves much comfortable in the dark. That we bring light into darkness. And do you know how you do that? It's not just by giving knowledge of salvation. It's not just by proclamation, but it's also by demonstration. Like when you feed someone who's hungry. 
when you clothe someone who doesn't have anything. Like all of our community groups are banding together this time of year and they're raising funds and adopting families and doing all of those type of things. That's bringing light into the darkness. But listen, you also bring light into the darkness when you forgive people who've wronged you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when you forgive people who don't serve, who, who don't deserve it, and when you give grace to people, and listen, you give grace to people even when you had the right to give them judgment. You withhold the judgment and you give them grace. This is what it means to expand the kingdom of God. Anytime there's forgiveness, anytime there's demonstration of that, we see literally the kingdom of God expanding. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, for I am building my church and the gates of hell, Hades itself, will not prevail against it. I don't care what's going on in the world. I am so weary when I turn on the news and everyone has an opinion and there's so much heartache and there's racism and there's brokenness, but I'm reminded that there's peace in Christ and that every time that we pursue that and we reach our hand out to someone who's different than us of a socioeconomic background and when we see that the power of the world is to show great power and to bulldoze over people I'm reminded that the kingdom of God was not done that way that Jesus did not expand his kingdom by the sword but rather that he took the sword in his side and here now in 2017 in Popper Bluff Missouri we are not declaring Caesar. We will not declare Trump. We will not declare George Bush. What we declare is Christ because Christ has risen from the dead. That's what will expand and always go forth through time, space, and history. It's Jesus Christ. It is Christ and it is Him crucified. And the last sign of the expansion of the kingdom of God is showing a path to peace is showing people that you can actually have peace in your life. And listen, peace is not a place. Peace is not your vacation. Your vacation. You come back from your vacation more spent than when you went, right? Driving back just exhausted. Listen, peace is not the home, the dream home to build. Got your Pinterest board all plucked with stuff. It's not that. Peace is not when your kids are out of the house. Peace is not just when your kids behave. Listen, peace is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And what he offers you, listen, peace is not the absence of trouble and suffering. Peace is the presence of God amidst that. That's what's so profound about Christianity, is that it offers you those things in the midst of this. A truly great life is a radically God-centered life. And it is so different than what we think it is. The influence of godly parents in our life. A filling of the Holy Spirit of God. A deep love for Jesus. And a passion to expand his kingdom. But did you know something? I actually left off a part of a verse. If you had your Bible and you were following along, you knew that and you are probably really nervous. When Jesus declares the greatness of John... He actually says these words. Out of anyone who is born, there's none greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What? What? And through the Spirit of God and through all of this, you're telling me that there can be greatness in the kingdom of God? 
Parker Williams sits on our board and he was telling me a story about when he was in Bible school. The professor was teaching these pastors and these men and women and he would stand them up in the front of the class and the professor would ask them, are you greater than John? Are you greater than John the Baptist? And he just watched people squirm. Uh, no, y- yes, I, ah, I don't know. <laughs> because you were fearful to answer that question because why? Because I would beg this, that you're actually afraid of true greatness. You're not afraid of failure in your life. You failed a lot. You're comfortable with failure. You're actually afraid to achieve true greatness because what if I can change? What if God's kingdom really does expand? And what if I really offer forgiveness and they accept it? You see, true greatness is not what we think it is. True greatness is a radically God-centered life. And as we see Jesus... True greatness is actually giving up your greatness. For the Son of God left the expansions of heaven and angels praising Him 24-7 and was born in a stinky stable. And today we worship His kingdom. Heavenly Father, we come before You today and God, I ask as the band leads us in a time of response and we come and see Your table. The body that was broken and the blood that was shed, this here is true greatness for us. God, I pray for the parents and for the families that are in here that today that you would radically realter their life. And over lunch today, they say, you know what? Some things are going to change in our family. At night, we're going to pray together. We're going to read a portion of Scripture. There's going to be repentance. We're going to love each other. And our home is going to be filled with grace. And the beginnings of greatness will begin. God, I pray for those who have never understood what it is to be filled with the very Spirit of God in their life. That it would be something that they would desire. That they would seek for. That they would long after. And understand that you've provided a way to live this life. And it is through your own Spirit. And oh God, I pray that the people of Westside, if anything, would be to have a deep love for Jesus Christ, that above all else that we could say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The one anthem and the one name in my life is the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that when we leave this place, that we would go with the passion to expand the very kingdom of God, that we would bring news of salvation that people can change, that we would bring light into darkness and that we would offer peace in the times of trouble. God, remind us in this holiday season, in Christmas and in Advent, that true greatness is not what we think it is. True greatness is only found in you, Jesus. And may we center our life around that truth. We pray this in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand right where you're at?